Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to open with me to the third chapter of Hebrews. We're having a thrilling time together studying in the epistle to the Hebrews. And one of the reasons that this epistle is so vital to believers is because it ties together both the Old Testament and the New. It shows the relationship between the two Testaments. You may be aware of the fact that many Christians don't read the Old Testament. I'll never forget how surprised I was when uh, in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which I was uh, part of as a teenager, they handed out Bibles, and I was so proud to get a Bible. And of course, they wouldn't do that today, probably in school functions or school organizations, but they handed out Bibles, and I'll never forget how thankful I was to get it and how disappointed I was when it was only the New Testament and Psalms. Now, of course, that's better than nothing, New Testament and Psalms. But for many professing Christians, that's all they read. But I dare say that uh, God gave us 66 books, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New, and all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's all necessary. You say, well, I don't uh, like reading the Old Testament history. Well, there's a lot in the New Testament we're not going to understand unless we're familiar with what happened in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the book of Hebrews sort of ties it all together. And it shows us that the Old Testament is revealed in the New, that the New is concealed in the Old. That is, the theme of the Old Testament is the same as the New. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so this book helps us to focus on Christ. And one of the reasons I feel like the Lord might have burdened me to preach through this letter is because over the last year I became focused on health concerns, as many of you did. I read article after article. That's all I was thinking about was health concerns and then economic and political matters. It's so easy to get focused, to get drawn in to that mindset, isn't it? And I thought, we're the church, and we need to be focusing on Jesus Christ. We need to worship. We need to preach the gospel. I don't have to, every sermon, try to make it something about what's happening around us. We need to focus on him. That's the ultimate reality. And so um, it may be the year 2150 before we finish the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Are you in for the long haul? (laughs) Now, I'm not going to just finish to finish. I mean, as long as the Lord burdens us, we'll stay at it. But um, I don't think it's wrong for us to consider Jesus. It's what the first verse of this third chapter says. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider. That word consider literally means to concentrate your gaze. Instead of just casually glancing, he says, I want you to block everything else out and consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 2, who was faithful to him that appointed him. Now here we go with the Old Testament reference. As also Moses was faithful in all of his house. God willing, this morning I want to speak on a greater than Moses. And what was happening to these Hebrews is they were losing focus on the Lord because of the culture 
in which they lived. You know that these Jewish Christians, Hebrews, were still surrounded by people going to synagogue on the Saturday Sabbath while they were going to the house of God or to church on Lord's Day morning. They had left Moses to follow Christ, but the pressure was so great that many of them thought that it was most convenient to return to the old way of worship under the Jewish law. So in order to persuade them to remain faithful to Christ, the apostle demonstrates in this letter the superiority of the new covenant to the old by showing that Jesus Christ is greater than every honored figure in their long-storied history. Greater than angels, as we learned in the first chapter. He's greater than Adam. He's the second Adam, as we learned in the second chapter. And now he's greater than Moses. You know, that's a theme that is present in the entire New Testament. Jesus Christ is the greatest that there's ever been. Famous boxer back in the 1960s and 70s said, I'm the greatest in the world. I'm telling you, there's a greater than the greatest. And the greatest that there's ever been is not a philosopher, a scientist, an athlete, or a politician. The greatest that there's ever been is the Son of God who assumed our nature and now has been elevated as a result of completing his covenant assignment. He's been lifted way up to the right hand of the Father. My friends, his reputation, his honor, his worthiness, his glory, his beauty, his sweetness, his excellency is superior to any man, woman, boy, or girl that you can think of today. I'm not afraid of bragging too much about Jesus. Somebody says, all you primitive Baptists want to do is brag on the Lord, amen and amen. If we were talking about me, bragging on me this morning, we would have already closed the door, locked it, and gone home because that's about, uh, that'd be too long. But when we boast in the Lord, when we glory in Him, it's so vitally important that we have a high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we could lose focus, and that's what was happening to these Jewish Christians. They were losing focus on the Lord because of the pressures they were facing in their environment. You ever been there? The pressures of life are so great that you forget who the Lord is, you lose focus on Him. That's why it's so important for us to come to the house of God and hear the gospel preached. So we can be reminded, right? If nothing else, church reminds you of what's really important. It reminds you of who loves you more than anything or anyone else. Maybe you come here today feeling very lonely, feeling very unloved. I'm telling you, you have one that loves you with an everlasting love and has already given you the greatest gift that could ever be received in this world. Isn't that wonderful to feel loved? You're a part of the family of God. So this epistle is really summarized. Here's the text of this sermon. Verse 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. The way that he demonstrates the superiority of the Old Testament to the New is to show us that Jesus Christ is superior to every figure that they held in high esteem. As I read the New Testament, I learn that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Remember John chapter 8? When he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? I mean, Abraham lived thousands of years ago. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I'm greater than Abraham. He's greater than Jacob, the patriarch. John chapter 4, as he sits on Jacob's well, passing through Samaria, 
A Samaritan woman comes out to fill her water pots with water. Jesus engages her in conversation. And he said, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. She asked, art thou greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And Jesus said, Jacob gave you water that will make you thirsty again. But I'll give you water in which you'll never thirst again. I have something better than Jacob had. The Spirit of God that can quench the spiritual thirst of the little child of grace. He's greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob. Matthew chapter 12, he says, a greater than Solomon is here. He's greater than King Solomon. The King Solomon is probably the most admired king. That is, as far as his power and his prestige, David, of course, is the godliest king. But Solomon, his son, his kingdom spread. I mean, he conquered territories, the reign of Israel grew and prospered. In fact, even the queen of Sheba came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, a journey that would take her several months. And when she had heard it, she said, the half was not told me. It's even greater than I knew. Jesus says, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. If the queen of Sheba would make such efforts to attend on Solomon's wisdom, shouldn't you and I make greater efforts to attend on the wisdom of Jesus Christ, who's greater than Solomon? And then he said, a greater than the prophet Jonah is here. Remember how Jonah had such great success in his ministry? He preached and the whole city of Nineveh repented. He says, a greater than Jonah is here. No matter who you name, Adam, the angels, Abraham, Jacob, Solomon, Jonah, or in our text this morning, Moses, Jesus is greater than all of the figures in Jewish historical lore. Moses was far and away the most respected and honored figure in Jewish history. Look at verse 3. For this man, talking about Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Those are high words. It's a high compliment. Jesus had more glory than Moses. Of course, in the Jewish mind, no one was more important than Moses. Moses was the founder of their religion, as it were. The father of like George Washington was the father of our country. Moses was, as it were, the leader of the nation of Israel during a very critical time in its history. But it says, this man was counted worthy of more glory than was Moses. Now, it's important to notice that the writer to the Hebrews and the New Testament as a whole never denigrates Moses. We're not talking about a comparison between the bad and the good. Saying Moses was bad, but I'm good. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a comparison between the good and the better. You see, the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, never speaks derogatorily of the law. The law had a glory. The law was given by God. But comparatively speaking, the gospel is so much greater. Moses, who gave the law, was a great man. But Jesus Christ is greater still. Greater than the leader of the Jews' religion. That's why he says in our text, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession. This is the only time, as far as I'm aware of, that Jesus is ever called by the title apostle. Now, we know Jesus himself had apostles, right? He sent his 12 apostles, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Peter and Andrew, Thomas, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Labius. Judas, his brother, Judas Iscariot. Jesus had his apostles. 
And of course, Judas Iscariot turned out to be a counterfeit, right? And he died, and they replaced him, according to God's providence, with the Apostle Paul, who said, I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul was an apostle. Now, we don't have apostles anymore today. That is, we don't have new apostles. On the sign in front of our church, it doesn't say, the apostle Michael Goins serves this church. No, I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor teacher. The apostles were foundational gifts in the church. That is, they had the same authority Christ had. He delegated to them his authority. And the word literally means to be sent. When Jesus said, as the Father hath sent me into the world, so send I you, John 20, verse 31. He's saying, I apostolo you, I apostle you. I give you the same kind of absolute authority that I had. Therefore, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I don't have that kind of authority except through what the apostles have written down in the New Testament. See, the church is ruled today not by the deacons or by the pastor or by the oldest member or by the largest voting block. The church is ruled today by the apostles. Through their word, we try to follow the scriptures, right? Every decision that comes before us, we go to the Word of God and say, okay, what does the Scripture say about it? And, and the tests for whether a book was to be included in the canon of the New Testament was, first and foremost, was it apostolic? Can it be tied to the apostles, either directly from one of the apostles or through someone on whom the apostles had direct influence? Every book, apostolicity was the ultimate test for whether a book was included in the canon of the New Testament Scripture. So the apostles still rule the church. You say, we don't have apostles today. Well, that's not technically true. We still have the apostle Paul, the apostle John. They're in heaven, and their words are divinely inspired, and they still are applicable today. But my friends, the greatest apostle is not one that Jesus sent. It's not Paul, Peter, James, or John. The greatest apostle is Jesus Christ, the apostle. He's not just a apostle. Notice the text. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Now, we've made a profession of faith. We are believers. We are people who have publicly confessed Christ in gospel baptism. And as professors of the Christian faith, Jesus Christ is the leader, the apostle, the one whom the Father has sent with official authority to be our apostle and the high priest of our profession. Notice, an apostle represents God to man. A high priest represents the people to God. The one comes down this way, the other goes up that way. As our apostle, Jesus Christ brought the truth of God and revealed it to man, to his people. As our high priest, he takes our cares and concerns to God. He's the apostle He's the origin of our faith, the author of our faith. He's also the one who represents us to God, the high priest of our profession. The writer to the Hebrews says, I want you to consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And the thing he wants us to consider most about Jesus Christ is that he's greater than Moses. My sermon's very simply organized this morning, if the Lord will bless us. I want to look at some comparisons between Moses and Christ, and then I want to look at some contrasts and show how he's greater. You know, Moses is one of the most striking types of Christ in all the Bible. There are so many comparisons or ways 
that Moses is a parallel to Jesus. In fact, some Bible students call him the Christ-like prophet. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. You're probably familiar with these words. Moses says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a capital P, prophet. Capital P. From the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall you hearken. Now, this is a prediction, a prophecy, thousands of years before the coming of Christ into the world. But he says, there's coming a prophet in the future, capital P again, like unto me. That is, you'll have a leader who's as authoritative as I am. He will be raised up from your brethren, just like I was. That is, this won't be a a foreigner that just shows up on the scene, but he says it'll be somebody from your midst. And of course, we know that Jesus Christ became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh in the incarnation, right? He says, unto him shall you hearken. I want to ask you, who are you listening to today? They say, well, I'm listening to the talking heads on TV. I'm listening to the university professor in the classroom. I get my worldview from this particular author, this particular thinker, this particular guru, we ought to be listening to Jesus Christ as he's revealed himself in his word. Him shall you hear. Listen to verse 18. I will raise up unto them, he says, a prophet, capital P again, from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So Jesus came as the teacher of heavenly things. He proclaimed his own everlasting gospel. He revealed God and his truth to the men that God had given him out of this world. Just like Moses taught the people God's truth. Remember, Moses revealed the law. And there are several ways in which Jesus and Moses' life parallel. First of all, Moses was protected supernaturally at his birth. Do you remember? When he was born, Pharaoh had issued a decree that all the children should be killed, all the male Hebrew children. It was an infanticide campaign fueled by his paranoia. He was afraid that they were getting so powerful that the Jews were so prolific that they would grow to the point that they would overthrow the Egyptians. So he wanted to limit their population growth. I'll tell you, it's always an evil thing when public officials try to limit population growth through infanticide or extermination campaigns. And it's happening even in the world in which you and I live, my friends. Euthanasia, the elimination of the elderly, abortion, the elimination of the young, both are ungodly plagues in the modern world. So Pharaoh wanted to eliminate the Hebrew population growth or control it. So he said, all of the male Hebrew children that are born need to be killed. Now, Moses' mother and father saw that he was a proper child. And so his mother made a little ark of a little basket, and uh, she pitched it with pitch. That is, she made it watertight. She put the little Hebrew baby inside the basket and set it by the banks of the Nile River and set it sail. She was trying her best when she saw that she couldn't hide the little baby any longer. He was growing to the point that she decided she would do what she could to save him. In the providence of God, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river Nile at the same time this little basket came by. Do you remember the story? And she sent her servant to look into the basket. The servant opened the little blanket over the basket and saw that the babe wept. And Pharaoh's daughter's heart, very daughter of the man who had given this edict 
to slay the children, her heart was moved with compassion at the tears of that little baby. She picked him up in her arms. She drew him out of water. That's why she named him Moses or Moshe, Moses, which means drawn from water. She saved the child from drowning. She took her to his own house. She saw a young Hebrew girl, which happened to be Moses' sister, that his mother had sent to watch the basket. She saw her and said, would you go fetch a Hebrew woman to come nurse this child for me? And she went and got her own mo- Moses' own mother to come and nurse Moses. And she was paid for doing it. Now you talk about the amazing providence of God. Not only was Moses' life spared, spared by the most powerful person or the second most powerful person in the land, Pharaoh's daughter. You say, well, I thought his son would have been. No, if you've ever had a daughter, you know she's a lot more powerful than a son is. And uh, she spared the child's life. And Moses' own mother came and nursed the child until it was weaned and was paid for doing it. But of course, when Moses grew up, he realized his true identity and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He reached a point where he identified himself with the humble people of God rather than live in the palace and succeed the Pharaoh on the throne, which he was in line to do. He uh, gave all that up to identify, but I get ahead of myself. You see, Moses was supernaturally protected in the providence of God at his birth. His life was spared. And I'll tell you, Jesus Christ, did you know when he was born, Herod had given a similar decree to slay all the Hebrew children. And the angel of the Lord warned Joseph and Mary to take the child to Egypt. And while Herod's men went about slaying Jewish children, male children that were two years of age and younger, the little babe Jesus was able to grow and develop in Egypt. And then when they came home, the prophecy was fulfilled, which said, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Both Moses and Jesus were supernaturally, providentially protected at birth. You see the parallel? Both of them also left their royal home to be identified with their people. Moses left the palace of Egypt. Again, Hebrews 11, verse 25 says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses stepped down. He humbled himself. By the same token, the Lord Jesus Christ, my beloved, left the portals of glory, his heavenly home, He took off the robe of his heavenly dignity, his heavenly glory, and he donned the garments of sinful humanity. He came to be identified with the sinful sons of Adam, you and me. He became one of us. Out of the ivory palaces, he stepped down and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross for you and me. You see the parallel between Jesus and Moses. Moses spent time in the wilderness before assuming the task that God had given him to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He spent 40 years on the backside of the desert. Likewise, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by the devil before he assumed his public visible ministry. After he was baptized, he went into the wilderness. By the way, the wilderness is always God's training ground in the scriptures. You'll find so many times it was David in the wilderness in the hill country of Bethlehem, Judah, where he learned that God was faithful to take care of him. And after he had learned to shepherd sheep, God elevated him to a position where he would shepherd the nation. Do for the nation what you've done for this flock of sheep. You see, David was trained 
among the flock. Moses was trained in the backside of the desert, keeping his father-in-law Jethro's flock of sheep. Jesus Christ, my beloved, was trained in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul later said that after his Damascus Road experience, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, but went into Arabia and into the desert. And he was there for a period of time being trained as an apostle. You know what God's seminary is? It's not some great palace, some palatial structure that has a high tuition and a demanding curriculum. God's seminary is on the backside of the desert. You give me a man who's been trained in solitude with him and the Lord. He's been taught to be humble and to depend on the Lord. I take that every day beyond somebody that has a lot of letters behind his name. I'm not minimizing the importance of education. I'm just saying the Lord's way of training preachers is different than man's way of training preachers. Moses was disbelieved by his brethren. When he saw the Egyptians smiting the Hebrew, Moses stood up and said, you're not supposed to do that. He ended up slaying the Egyptian. But his own brethren then asked him the next day, wilt thou slay me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And knowing that what he had done was known, Moses fled for his life, lest Pharaoh should exact justice upon him. Jesus Christ was also disbelieved by his brethren. He came unto his own, says John 1.11, and his own received him not. His own Jewish people, who should have known their prophecy, their Old Testament, and expected him, yet they turned a blind eye and a deaf ear, and they did not receive him as being the anticipated Messiah. Even his own natural brothers, John chapter 7 says, did not believe in him. Moses was disbelieved by his brethren, so was Jesus. Both of the men performed miracles. Moses stretched out his rod and parted the waters of the Red Sea by the power of God. Moses was able to deliver manna from heaven to feed the people. Moses turned the waters into blood. Now God did it, you say. Yes, but he did it through his agent Moses. There are only three periods in human history in which God gave men the power to perform miracles. Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Now God's still in the business of performing miracles. Do you believe that? Our God's still a miracle-working God. But as far as giving men the power, immediate miracles, that is miracles through means, as opposed to immediate miracles, miracles that God does directly. As far as immediate miracles are concerned, miracles through men, there are only three periods in human history. And Moses and Aaron was one. So Jesus, my beloved, was able to turn water to wine, unstop the ears of the deaf, cause the blind to see and the lepers to be cleansed and the lame to walk. Jesus performed miracles also. You see the parallels between these two men, Moses and Jesus. Both of them occupied an office as mediator of the covenant. Moses mediated the law. Christ mediated the gospel. John 1.17 puts it like this. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Both men were marked by a characteristic of meekness and humility. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we read that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Both men are similar in that regard. In the case of both, their bodies were not found after they died. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, we read a very interesting account of the death of Moses. When he died, it says the Lord buried him. <laughs> the Lord buried the body of Moses because no doubt he knew that the as superstitious as the 
Jewish people were. He knew they would make a shrine out of his body and worship it. So God buried Moses, and no man knows where he's buried to this very day. In fact, the devil, you read in the book of Jude, contended with the archangel Michael about the body of Moses. Michael would not durst bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. In other words, the devil's trying to find out where Moses is buried. But God buried him. He knows where he's buried. That's all that matters, right? God knows. Even so, after the death of Jesus, they went to find his body on the third and appointed morning, and it says the tomb was empty. His body, you can't present it. You can't exhume his tomb and present his remains. The same with Moses to this day. I'll tell you, both of these men had intimate access to God. We read that God spoke to Moses face to face. Listen to this in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 12 is what I wanted, verse 6. God says, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so. That is, he's different. I won't communicate with him in a vision or dream. Who is faithful in all my house, with him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently not in dark speeches. That is, Moses had an intimacy with God. God spoke to him face to face. So Jesus Christ, Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says, No man knoweth the Father but the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him, neither knoweth any man the Son but the Father. That is, there's a face-to-face intimacy. It's not a proxy kind of relationship, not a second-hand kind of relationship. It's direct, face-to-face, intimate. Moses and Jesus are so similar. And in our text, we learn both were faithful to the assignment God had given them. Notice verse 2. It says about Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him as Moses was faithful in all of his house. Moses and Jesus were both faithful to God. The image here is of a steward that manages a household. Just like Joseph was steward of Potiphar's house. You remember that story in the Old Testament where he gave Joseph responsibility to manage the affairs of the home? That's what a stewardship is. So Moses was made God's steward to manage the household, which means the people of Israel. Moses was faithful in that charge. So Jesus Christ, my beloved, is faithful over the church, which is the house of God. Listen to verse 3. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than was Moses. Now, we've talked about their comparisons. Let's talk about the contrasts. In verses 3 through 6, you see there's this contrast that even though they're very similar, Moses and Jesus, both were faithful. Both were leaders. Both were targeted in their birth for extermination. Both their bodies cannot be found after their death. Both performed miracles. Both were covenant officers. Both had a characteristic of humility and meekness. Yet even though they're so similar, there's this contrast. Jesus is on a higher plane. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than was Moses. I'll tell you, there are many Jews in the world today Many Orthodox Jews, many religious Jews, many ethnic Jews. And every Jew would tell you that I hold Moses in high esteem. You and I, though, are Christians. Do we think Moses was a bad character? Absolutely not. He was a great man. But he wasn't God. He wasn't divine. He was faithful to God. What a wonderful thing 
That is. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that could be said of you and me, that when we're dead and gone, he was faithful to God. Brother Goins was a faithful servant of God. But you know, that's what it, that's what it amounts to. I'm a servant. But Jesus is different than Moses in this sense. For Moses, he says, was faithful in all of his house, verse 5, as a servant. For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. That is, he was a type of something better to come. It's like a shadow. You ever get worried that your shadow's out of shape? You know, sometimes I'll look down at my shadow and I think, man, I need to lose weight. <laughs> and it's probably true, but it's not as exaggerated as the shadow makes it appear. You know, the shadow, depending on the angle of the sun, the shadow is just, it's not an exact replica. It's not the express image. The shadow is simply similar to the substance, to the reality, right? I mean, I look at my shadow and there's, there's no hint of how handsome I am looking at the shadow. <laughs> but um, there's no hint of how, you know, of what shape I'm in. It's just a similarity. And my shadow is similar to the reality. You know, I can look at the, my shadow and it looks probably different than your shadow. But still, both of them are just a, you know, they're not an exact replica. Moses was a shadow of the real leader that God would send. It says, as a testimony of those things which were spoken after, but Christ is not a servant in the house of God. He's a son over the house. Here's the idea. You ever seen a business? Um, Jones and Sons. Smith and Sons. What does that mean? That means dad's or granddad started the business, then he passed it down to his son. And then when he retired or passed on, he passed it on to his sons. And it's still a family-owned business, Smith and Sons. Now, does Smith and Sons or Jones and Sons, does that mean that only their family members are employees? No, they may, have, they may hire me as one of their employees, even though I'm not kin to them, right? I may work for them. I'm a servant. I'm an employee in the business, but I'll tell you, in the final analysis, it's a family-owned business, and the son has more glory or honor than the employee, than the servant. Moses, we're told, was a servant in God's house. He was a part of the household, but Christ is a son over the house. You see the superiority? Jesus Christ is God, a very God. He was gifted his people in covenant. And Jesus Christ is the leader. Now Moses was the leader, but he was one of them and he was part of them. He was a member of the household. But Jesus Christ is the builder of the house, just like a father is the builder of a family. His household, he's the founder, he's the builder, he's the paterfamilias. So Jesus Christ, I dare say, my friends, is the builder of this household, and he goes on to say in verse 6, whose house are we if you hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. Now, what was the problem in the book of Hebrews? They were about to let go of their profession of faith and go back to the law. He wants them to hold it fast, right? Hold on to it. Don't give up on it. Don't stop going to church. Don't cease to believe in Jesus Christ. Don't Buckle to the pressure that you're under and leave the church for the synagogue 
Don't try to hold on to both worlds. Don't be like a hoarder. Trying to hold on to the past while you've got something new. Now, I know there's a certain amount of that in each one of us, but you see, the Hebrews were the original hoarders. The Hebrews were trying to have the best of all worlds. And they were even, although they said, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still going to synagogue. Why don't you leave the synagogue and come to the church? You know, it's a hard thing to get somebody to let go of their old habits, of their past allegiances. It's a hard thing. If, you, if it's been a part of your life and your heritage and your culture for many centuries past, it's a hard thing to say, okay, you don't need that anymore. It has served its purpose. That's the shadow. Now you've got the reality. You've got the substance. It's time to let go of it. Now, you say, Brother Mike, what does this have to do with us today? There are so many people who still try to win God's favor by keeping the law, by their works. And there's something about that kind of mindset in, that's born into each one of us. I think we're born into this world, Arminians. Somebody says, I was born a primitive Baptist. There is no such thing. Your mom and daddy and grandparents might have been old Baptists, but uh, I'll tell you, by nature, you were born a free willer, an Arminian, thinking that you had to do something in order to make God love you. It is a wonderful day when it finally dawns on a person that salvation is by grace alone and it's not by our works. You can't do enough. You can't live righteously enough. You can't believe hard enough or persevere long enough. You can't, my friends, perform enough good works to outweigh one sin, much less all of the sins in your life. If, if you're home in heaven, your salvation depends upon you. You're a goner. You're done for, and so am I. My beloved, it's so wonderful to let go of the past, even if that's been your religion. You say, okay, sinner, if you'll just hold out and hold on and turn over a new leaf and believe and be baptized, and if you will outrun the devil till you die and help the poor and the elderly, and if you will just do enough good works, you can finally go to heaven one day, but it really depends on you. So, my beloved, what a tremendous burden to bear. Moses was God's man, God's leader for the hour, but he served his purpose, and now we have a greater than Moses. In what way is he greater than Moses? In response to the commission that he was given, you know, when Moses was given his commission by God, I want you to lead the people out of Egypt, do you remember what Moses did? Not me, Lord, find somebody else. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 3. He said, Lord, I'm not good at talking. I'm a man of stammering tongue. He lays excuse after excuse on the Lord. He says, Lord, I'm out here in the backside of the desert. You're wanting me to go back to Egypt? Don't you know that I, there's a warrant out for my arrest? Lord, I've got a bad track record. My history isn't good. As soon as I show my face, they'll lock me up. I'll be in trouble. And Lord, I'm not good at talking anyway. I do better out here where I can't bother anybody. Nobody can bother me on the backside of the desert. Lord, just let me keep these sheep fed and watered and... Uh, won't you find somebody else? He finally says, Moses, I've called you. This isn't a, a request. This is a commission. You've been drafted into the army. And if you don't feel like you can talk good, then I'll get your brother. He can talk good. Aaron, to be your mouthpiece. But you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses sort of is hesitant, reluctant to accept this commission. You remember? What about Jesus? Was he reluctant when the father said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
in the covenant before the world began, the council halls of eternity passed, and the Father's looking for a redeemer. Did Jesus say, well, I, I don't know, maybe, why don't you try to find Michael or Gabriel or what about Abraham or maybe David? Why don't you send, uh, I just don't really, uh, let me check my calendar. Lord, I, Father, I just don't want to, was Jesus ever reluctant? No, my friends, he said, here am I, send me. You see, he's greater than Moses in the response, his initial response to the calling that God gave him. Psalm 40 verse 7 says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Thy law is within my heart. Jesus came with delightful obedience, not reluctance to the commission that was given. Jesus is greater than Moses in terms of the significance of the deliverance he accomplished. Now Moses accomplished a great victory. He led the children of Israel across the Red Sea, remember dry ground, and Pharaoh and his entire army, his host, was drowned in the depths of the sea. And when they stood on the banks of deliverance, they sang the song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15. The Lord hath triumphed gloriously. Notice how he gives all the glory to God. He's meek. He's humble. He doesn't accept any of it to himself. The Lord hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. In fact, so complete was Moses' deliverance that even the bones of Joseph came out of Egypt. Joseph had told them years before that when you depart Egypt, I want you to carry my bones from hence. By faith, Joseph had made mention of the departing of the children of Israel out of Egypt, says Hebrews chapter 11, and he made commandment concerning his bones. And sure enough, when they came out, even the bones of Joseph, showing that this was a complete deliverance, not one Israelite was left behind. I'm telling you, dear friends, when Jesus came, he too had a glorious triumph. I love that. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. He didn't say the Lord has won this battle by the skin of his teeth. This isn't just a partial victory. This isn't, you know, we, we won. It's a W, but we lost some casualties. No, it was a glorious triumph. It was a categorical victory. Even so, when Jesus Christ came, my beloved, to save his people from their sins, I want to tell you, even the bones of Joseph, all of his children, that were given him in covenant before the world began. Everyone that was loved by the Father was redeemed by the Son on the cross of Calvary. He finished the work. Not one that the Father had given to him was left out. He said that in John 6, 37, didn't he? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he's given me I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. But you know the difference between Jesus and Moses? Moses' deliverance was a political deliverance. He delivered them from political bondage. Jesus Christ delivered us spiritually and eternally. You know, the Jews finally went back into bondage. They went into bondage in Babylon some years later, but Jesus delivered his people and they'll never go back under the penalty of sin. He's delivered them once and for all by himself. He has purged us from our sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's another contrast. When Moses died, he was not permitted to go into the promised land. God gave him a sight of it. He climbed Pisgah's lofty heights, Mount Nebo, and he looked over into the land. But God would not allow him to go into the land because of his disobedience to God. But I'll tell you, when Jesus Christ finished his work, he ascended on high and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, a successful, complete Savior. He assumed that posture of rest. You see the difference between Jesus and Moses not only in terms of the deliverance that he accomplished, but in terms of his ascension. 
to the right hand of God. And I'll tell you one more difference between Jesus and Moses in terms of their role as intercessor. Moses was a great intercessor. When God became put out with the children of Israel and said, let me alone, Moses, that I may consume this people. I'll destroy them and start over with you. Moses in Exodus 32 interceded on their behalf to God. He said, Lord, take me instead of them. He said, Lord, forgive their sins. If you annihilate the nation right now and start over with me, then the enemies of my Lord will say, because the Lord could not deliver them to the promised land, he slew them in the wilderness. He says, oh Lord, uh, think of your own glory and Lord have mercy. He went between the offender and the offended God, the offending people and the offended God, and he interceded for them and God heard his prayer. But I'm telling you, dear friends, the intercession of Christ is even more relevant and more significant and more long-lasting than Moses' intercession, for he now appears in the presence of God for you and me, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And whenever you and I sin, the Lord Jesus Christ raises a nail-scarred hand before the throne of God and says, forgive Mike Goins, Father. I know he's a rebel, but I've died for him and I've shed my blood for him. Receive him for my sake. And I'll tell you, the Father hears him every time. No wonder in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus experiences this transformation, his raiment became white and glistering and his face shone with the brightness of the sun, his glory shined through the veil of his humanity. His deity shined through, if you please. And Peter, James, and John saw it. And they also saw Moses and Elijah there on that mountain who were discussing a topic with each other. You remember what they were talking about? It says they were discussing his decease, which Jesus should accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word decease, interestingly, is the word exodus. Remember, it was Moses who led the exodus out of Egypt. The book of Exodus in your Old Testament is about Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. But you see, the exodus of Jesus that he would accomplish at the cross is even greater than the exodus out of Egypt. For he delivered us not from the iron furnace of political bondage, but he delivered us from the broken law of God and eternal judgment by his own perfect obedience. We're part of the house of God, part of the church, if we hold fast this confidence. Now, he didn't say you're part of God's family. God has a big family. You see, Moses was the apostle of the households. Jesus Christ is the builder of the house, builder of the church. We're part of God's family because of his grace. But I'm telling you, this is conditional. As far as our obedience to the Lord is concerned, it is incumbent upon you and me to hold fast the confidence, the faith that we professed in him, and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end, and we'll be of the household of faith, the household of God. You know, I have a lot of kinfolks who don't live in my house, right? God has a lot of children who don't live in his house, his church. But I want to be a part of the church. I'm so thankful to be a part of his family, but I want to live in his household, don't you? Jesus is the builder of this house. He's over it. He's the apostle and high priest of our profession of faith. My friends, Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. Moses, the most beloved person in Jewish history, was honored because he gave them the Torah, the law, the five books of Moses. But Jesus is the apostle and high priest of the Christian profession of faith because he's the mediator of a better covenant. And I ask you today, have you made such a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you haven't, you should. That's one decision I've never regretted.
Never been ashamed. I've never rethought it and thought, you know, I shouldn't have been baptized. My beloved, I'm so glad I followed Jesus. You say, well, preacher, it makes me nervous. Well, take the first step. I guarantee you he'll help you take the next one. You'll be up front before you know it. All you got to do is say, I love the Lord. He's my hope. I want to follow him. I want to be one of his disciples. I want to live in the house of God. I want to profess faith in him. I want to hold on to him. And then I want to maintain that hold all the way to the end of my life. My beloved, if you haven't, you ought to profess faith in Jesus. If you have, never let it go. Never relax your grip. In fact, never let him go. Let me say it like that. Never let him go. Hold your beloved in your arms and never let him go. But hold fast to him to the very end. And so enjoy the benefits of living in the household of faith. Dear dying.